All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? You know, look, sometimes I annoy myself, all right? So don't don't think you're alone out there. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. I'm edgy. I'm thrilled to be here, but I'm edgy. I'm very excited that I have Billy Bragg in the uh, garage today. What a what a what a fucking saint that guy is and what a true artist. Yeah, I'll tell you, man, it is difficult to maintain a life of integrity politically and personally and artistically and have all those things operating at the same hum uh, because it's in your heart. That is a rare person. And Billy Bragg is that person to find, you know, to talk to somebody whose politics come from sort of an earnest moment of revelation and then to sort of make a life out of that and, and, and understand where that comes from and why it happens and that that is your passion in your heart. What an amazing uh, treat it was to have him here. And he plays some songs. It's spectacular. We'll get to that in just a second. I got some business to do for myself and for others. I also want to address the Michael Ian Black, Mark Marin, uh, Twitter war brouhaha. That may, you know, you may not know that it's a brouhaha, but certainly some people, the feeders, the 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 content hungry outlets who are you know constantly kind of um, bottom feeding the internet for things they can make hay out of, kind of made it a big deal. And I'm, I got nothing against that. I mean, most of you who listen to my show know my relationship with Michael. I will tell you some backstory on that. The other thing I want to say, you know, I was a little cranky on Monday, but, uh, you know, I'm so glad so many of you love the Pam Adlon, Pamela Adlon uh, interview. The feedback's been amazing. It's very, it's very interesting to me that on the website, that especially when I have women on, there's a lot of vocal dudes out there who are dicks and douchebags. But you know what? It seems that uh, Pamela Adlon warms the, 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 is it the cockles of even the most nerdy, aggravated heart. Uh, people love her and I love her. And I'm glad you enjoyed that episode. Moving on. The thing about Jessica that I was talking about in terms of like, look, you know, she wants to have kids. She wants to have a house. She wants to have a a ring. She wants all the things that a a woman her age wants and rightfully wants. And in sometimes with me, and I don't know what your situation is, and you can judge me however you want. But, you know, I've been, uh, you know, what is it? I've been to the dance before. Is that it? So it's very, I, I cannot be cynical in this situation. And if I came across as cynical, you know, I don't want to mi- misrepresent my relationship. I love this woman and I want her to have a great first experience uh, of, uh, of marriage and children and everything else. And if I'm the guy that's going to do that, I've, as you know, those of you who know me, I've got to go out of my way to not be a dick. And did not be dismissive and did not be cynical just because I've uh, I have fucked it up before. And uh, it seems like an old hat, which it isn't, because I don't think I've ever been uh, the man I've been with her that I was with the other ones. I'd like to think I'm growing. And obviously, some of you who may have seen the Twitter argument between Michael Ian Black and myself, though we're not dating. It did have a uh, lover's quarrel element to it, or at least there's very it's a very weird and uh, rare thing. To have a dynamic with somebody where the the sort of contempt is equal to the uh, compassion, and the the weirdest thing about what happened on Twitter and did, did I just did I make some weird awkward shift from me and Jessica to me and Michael Ian Black? Yeah, make of it what you want. But I, what I wanted to 
share with you about the Jessica situation is, is, is I love her. She's not bullying me. You know, I'm just a, you know, an old guy set in my stupid old ways. And in order for me to get out of my old ways, you know, I've got to let love in and, 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 you know, and be present for stuff in a non-cynical way. Good luck with that. Hey, how about being present with an open heart and not being a cynical fuck? All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll give that a try for a few minutes. See how that goes. But as some of you know, on Twitter, I am volatile. Is that the word? I am a raw nerve. And quite honestly, whenever I engage in a Twitter fight uh, with Pat Oswalt or Dave Anthony or Michael Ian Black, as the case was day before yesterday, I don't fare well. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't generally win. Uh, I usually end up getting my ass kicked. And that hurts my feelings, but you know, I'm trying to learn how to frame it in a fun way. Busting balls is busting balls. Unfortunately, depending on who you are, busting balls is a very personal thing. It's not a hobby. It's not something that, you know, like I get joy out of figuring out how to insult people. If I'm insulting somebody, I want it to hurt. And if they're insulting me, no matter what, it's going to hurt me. So, you know, generally I'm trying to just suck it up and and realize that, you know, it's not life or death and, and it is fun. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. The Twitter thing is the Twitter thing. You know, if two funny people, especially people that have a relationship, are going at each other, there is some love there. There is not, this is not, uh, you know, uh, like, oh my God, I hope their friendship lasts or, or they really hate each other. No, if you're engaging with somebody, definitely you have feelings invested in it. And I can say that about people I don't know at all who just call me an asshole with four followers. But but that's different. The interesting thing to me about the whole exchange on uh, on on the on the Twitter with Michael is that, you know, we do that. Him and I do that. And the fact that, you know, all of a sudden I'm getting a text from Salon Magazine saying, you know, what's up with Michael Ian Black? And I'm like, what do we do that sometimes? What do you mean? What's up? We're funny guys. We both have an attitude. We both, uh, you know, are known to be somewhat, you know, cunty and bitchy and, uh, and, and assholes. And uh, we engage. He started it though. I want to make it clear that Michael Ian Black started that. I was not looking for a fight. I was actually just, you know, being thoughtful. I made a thoughtful tweet about garbage. I said, if this, if everything is garbage, there's near, you know, there's no point in having principles. And then he said, have you been reading your book? Mm. Yeah. So then I engaged and, you know, look, it, it, it could have gone either way. I think he might've edged me out a little bit, but I, I think I got some good ones in, in my way. And he definitely, you know, handed me my ass in that way. But I don't like when you fuckers pile on piling on is the, it's just being a pussy. Don't wedge into our fight. I was fighting with Pat Oswald and so many people started piling on that. It, like I got distracted and I wanted to attack them. And the same thing yesterday It's like, Michael's got a billion followers. So a lot of them were like, you suck. Who are you? What's good? You know, you're nobody. And, uh, you know, it, it, it ruined the fun for me, you know, just be, just because me and an old friend who I have a contentious relationship with are having it out, you know, doesn't mean that that's an open door for you to shit in my yard. And then people argue, but it's an open platform, man. It's about interactivity. Fine. I understand. It just ruins the fun for me. I just enjoy the fact that me and Michael hate each other sometimes. Just be an audience and then score it if you want to. And then I just got an email from Michael Ian Black. Good stuff, buddy. And I wrote back, ha, you too. Uh, <laughs> so obviously we are, you know, friends. Are we friends? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. Here we go. Let me just give you a couple of dates and a, and a little more business. And then, um, and then we'll move on. I will be at Stand Up Live in Phoenix, Arizona on uh, June 6th. 
I will be uh, doing a book event at Politics and Prose at 6 and I on June 11th in Washington, D.C. On June 12th, I will be doing the Attempting Normal book tour at Barnes & Noble in Union Square, New York. June 13th, I will be in New York as well for the Bryant Park Summer Reading Series. June 14th, Friday, I will be uh, at the Harvard Bookstore at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Tuesday, June 18th, I will, uh, I'm doing a, a, a panel at the Paley Center in Los Angeles. Just to make it clear, apparently I said New York for the Paley Center event last show. That's in Los Angeles. And I do want to say that I am losing my uh, my memory. I don't know if it's because so much is going on, but like I can't fucking remember movies I saw a week ago. Here's a little unfolding story. My dad and I aren't speaking. Because of the book, because of the TV show, because there, there was no negotiating, I made choices. I don't know how that's going to end, but... Uh, I did have a chat with David Sedaris about it, who likes my book. I talked to David Sedaris, and he came in here with my book, and he had marked on his on his iPad parts he thought were funny. I don't know if I can really explain what an amazing thing it was to have David Sedaris, who I respect a lot as a writer, telling me my book was funny. So that was amazing. Now... It's my honor to bring to you my conversation with the uh, the troubadour and uh, activist and genuinely decent dude, Billy Bragg. It was a what the fuck moment, you know. Sure. And what which, we knew, year, which which year? Oh, uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, the the were, newer riots. Yeah. The more recent riots. Yeah. <laughs> there was a, uh, part of a great tradition. There was a- uh, well, thank God, right? Guy, a guy got arrested and shot and it kicked off. And the police in London were all in one place. So elsewhere around the town, yeah, looting began. Sure. And we had like two or three nights where there was spontaneous looting, shops were fired outside of London as well. And it was basically all just people nicking stuff. Right. Well, that's all it ever is. It's like, all right, th- those people are riding for a reason. I'm going to get some free shit. That, exactly. There's always <laughs> that aspect to it. But, but it, it seemed to me, you know, afterwards people were trying to make sense of it. And it seemed to me that what, what you know, it was a WTF moment in which yeah. my generation, I'm 55. You know, yeah, I'm 49. And we just didn't understand it. And there was a lot of writing about, um, you know, sort of middle-aged, <clears throat> middle-class, upper-middle-class journalists trying to explain it. But nobody was actually there coming forward in you know in a band or something in right. the way that would have happened in the 60s in the way that people here wrote about what happened at Kent State sure and I sure. articulated it and Four explained dead in Ohio yeah explained WTF yeah. to the rest of America you know so this to middle was, America this was the anti-capitalist uh, world uh, trade organization riots no it wasn't you know? really that's the whole thing it was nothing other than people stealing trainers <laughs> but what WTF <laughs> It's going on, you know, and and I don't want to be. I don't want my rioters mediated by some commentator in the Times. I want to hear from the kids. Yeah, WT, what are you pissed what, off WTF about? WTF? Did yeah. they think it was going on? Because yeah. you know, it may be that underneath it all, there is a sense of of anger that is no longer possible. They no longer feel it's possible to articulate through voting. So that well, that well, or that they can't even communicate it uh, in terms of like what what it it actually is. I mean, maybe they're not even politically uh, educated or intuitive enough. Maybe they don't believe politics can articulate it anymore, and they just want to you know, break I mean, some shit up. You got to remember, yeah, you got to remember that in our last election in the UK, nobody won. 
we have a coalition government. That's never happened in our country. What what that you was know? it was it apathy or just a? a I think it was, uh, I think it wasn't an element of apathy in there. I mean, obviously the Labor Party had been in for a long time and were quite unpopular. Yeah, the economy was. Uh, tanking, yeah. But the the three main parties offered the same sort of thing: cuts, you know. But but so the cuts over just... long term. So people were like, you know, stick it. So <laughs> you guys, which is fair out. enough, yeah. You know? And I think the political class in my country has failed to recognise that and do something about it. They will go into the next election offering austerity uh, in in different uh, you know different types of plaid. What yeah. sort of austerity would you sure. like? You know, yeah, would you yeah. like a big plaid austerity? Yeah. How about a hat? Like, yeah, a hat? Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's going to be, you know, you're going to get it up the wazoo, whichever <laughs> way you vote for them. Who wants to vote for that? No. So, you know, and this is a real problem. I mean, you're probably aware in Europe, Yeah. <clears throat> you know, the... But you got a financial problem? A slight problem. The problem <laughs> is, no, it's not a financial problem. I mean, if you look at Cyprus, the problem is the government is going to take 10% of your money in the bank. It's a commission. Yeah, but under you know with no mandate, nobody voted for this. Oh no, we had and the that guys who decided the, it were in Brussels with the bailout. We had yeah. the same thing. It's sort of like what what's happening? Uh, we're the government's going to we're just going to pay this. These but guys I mean, ripped off the but world. I mean, the, but you know the thing is, we're going to pay them. Yeah, but governments have always done that. They've always bailed out the I mean, rich but people. Was, that's was, new. But coming in and taking out ten percent of your bank account, yeah, that's new shit. So that's that, really they're going to really that's, do that was a, the plan in Cyprus. Yeah, how are we going to pay for the bailout from the European Union? The tithing. Rip? It's literally tithing. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, but but. The first thing they before they said they were going to do it, they yeah. they switched off all the ATM machines. Oh, really? Mm. That's see, that's scary. And you always wanted, uh, yeah. Who's, yeah. Whose idea was this? Yeah. It wasn't the it wasn't the Cyprus government's idea. It was but the, that, it was the. But European then doesn't bank. then it all goes back up to uh, you know who's really in control? How much say does the people really have? None, really, most of the time, uh, unless yeah. you can get a nice sort of well, like would, momentum would, going. If you would believe them, they would say the markets are in control. In inverted commas, well, who are the markets? And they what sold a lot of people on that? that. What about the fucking people that decided that uh, you know that that free global you know, unregulated uh, you know free market capitalism yeah. on a global level will yeah. find its own level that's right what it, what that, the, that in itself is crazy adam, adam smith talked about the invisible hand of capitalism yeah and you can have it feeling up your bank account yeah. you feel that invisible hand in your back right. pocket taking your wallet I out feel it. You and can counting it. out your, your money and taking it away and when, when it gets the, real bad you can feel it in your ass i mean the thing about that <laughs> yeah the thing about that fisting yeah the invisible the, fist of capitalism yeah, that's what up it is yeah, yeah but the point is that, that yeah. the whole idea of that was yeah. that if a, a company didn't do the right thing and was not viable, it would collapse, right? Yeah, but that's not... But when, when the government bails out a bank that is too big to collapse because it would trash the economy, then we're, we're, you know, we're out of the... Uh, we're not in Kansas but the, anymore. But the whole idea you know, that, that they... This doesn't work anymore. Right. We've got to find another way to, to make... Uh, 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 capitalism work for the benefit of everybody rather than just let it blow and blow and, and that, blow. And that's so through, yeah, through regulation, that. which yeah. these guys hate. Well, but the whole don't, idea- don't talk about it like, don't use that phrase. I think it's a better phrase, <laughs> yeah. which is accountability. Okay, you okay, know? I'll, I'll use mean, accountability. You know, because this is crucial, this, because, you know, your country, you believe capital F freedom. Hey, is your, don't, don't point at me. No, I'm not, I know. But, you know, <laughs> you know what, Americans look at our attempt to regulate the free press through law mm-hmm. and throw their arms up in that, but it's not about um, trying to close down the free press. It's about trying to hold that free press accountable for what they have said. Not to tell them what they can write about, but once they've printed a story, yeah. to hold them accountable Be a for journalist. the damage. Be a journalist. The damage. Yeah. That that may have caused right. to an individual's life. Well, I think that there's, you know, like, and, and that, and I think unless you can hold, yeah. the powerful to account, yeah. you're not really free. You can make that argument that if you don't, if you aren't ab- able to hold the powerful to account. Then you're free, and not well, just the, not just through election, but through law. Other through law, yeah, yeah that's through what the courts. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. and that's where this country has really kind of dropped off. Is that you know it is completely not affordable for anybody to fight the power legally. 
It's unaffordable. And there's no way for people to, for individuals to feel represented. And corporations, they can feel represented. Mm. They've got plenty of money, but there's really well, no voice. Well, you there. know, it's, it's ironic because it's, in some ways, it's <clears throat> a aspect of intense individualism that you should be able to, as an individual, you're so empowered, particularly in a country like America, you're, yeah. the individual is so empowered that, that they can say WTF. Yeah. You know, I'm going to hold you to to account, and 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 that's interesting because in the old days that was done by the collective, and now the individual is lifted up there, and they're so you know the individual believes so much that they are the center of the universe. That yeah, but that account- usually goes the other way. They're not worried about accountability. It seems to me that the individual has elevated to the point where if it doesn't affect me directly, I don't give a fuck. And no, that's, if that's, I'm okay, that's, that's that's libertarianism. That's something different. No, that's but just, I mean, that's but a the, different type of freedom. That's no, a different type of freedom. But that's an ideological thing, libertarianism. But I'm saying that in yeah. general, the the sort of self centeredness of what individualism means mm-hmm. here now yeah. is like I'm concerned with me. You know, if it's out of my periphery, like at certain at a certain point, you have to be able to say, well. How does it affect all of us? And if you're not really capable, if you're too selfish to say that because you're too preoccupied. Well, you have to ask yourself, you know, that Amer- wages in the United States of America have been flatlining for the last seven years. Horrendous, yeah. You know, and that's basically because the unions were busted. Completely. There's no one out there, that's there right. standing up for, for people getting paid proper wages. And the, and, the, and the corollary of that is that they have to live off credit and they don't have credit. So in order for capitalism to work, the banks have to give credit to people who can't afford it. That's what created the, uh, the, the supply the, market. And yeah. that's why the whole share house has gone up in flames because they won't play and proper it's all, wages. Yeah, it's indentured servitude as yeah. well. And they yeah. won't they won't they will not do proper wages. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's right. That's what it is. It comes all comes down to that because I mean I, I don't know what's happening in the US but our economic problem we're not actually in the European uh, economic Right in the in the eurozone, right. so the problems that that France and Germany have are not the same problems that we have. But we have a problem of demand. There's no demand in the economy. You know, people aren't people are sitting on their money because they're not sure what's going to happen next year. And once you lose confidence, it's very hard to get it back. You know, it's put, it's putting money. The answer to our problems in the UK anyway is putting all, all money into the pockets of ordinary working people and giving them back the confidence to go and shop and buy shit. So when did you actually? When did this activate in you? I mean, when did this like? Because I I actually went back and I listened to some of your first albums. When did it start? I mean, where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, East London. In a, 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 I'm, not, I'm not familiar with it, so give me a character. Okay, characterize a London borough of 160,000 people, yeah. predominantly working class, yeah. North Bank of the River Thames, East End. That's the working class side of town. Yeah, main employer, Ford Motor Company. Mm-hmm. Forty thousand people building cars. Mm-hmm. Probably t- t- that number again working for ancillary companies, which my dad worked for. For which oh, one? At, for ancillary companies oh, that were providing shit for Ford. For Ford. You know? All right. Yeah, so yeah, it was an American yeah. automotive yeah. company. Detroit was pretty important where, right. we, where we live. Yeah. yeah. And um, I failed my uh, exams at 11, which meant instead of going to grammar school and university, I went to technical school, which meant I was going to be trained to go and work in a car factory. Yeah. And um, that was just the way it went. That was the way everyone worked there. Yeah. You know, and it was good right. wages. Sure. It was good work because the unions were strong there. Yeah. It was good money. You, you got health care, you line. got a pension. You you got- no, you don't have to worry about health care and pension. The government right. gives you that anyway. You just right. get good money. That, that's already in place. Forget about that. You forget about that. Yeah. You lucky get, bastards. You, and, and also, you get, there's a kind of, there was a kind of community of respect, of a skilled workforce sure we're making uh, things yeah we're making important things yeah. that people like yeah you know and there was that whole aspect going on there but um 
when the careers officer took us to the main body plant, I thought to myself, you know what? That, that's as close as Hades I've ever seen. Just the, the mechanism, mechanizing. the sound, the, yeah, the yeah. heat, the faces of the men. It's like going down the pit of Hades. <laughs> it was horrible. So I started plotting. How am I going to get away Was from it an this? assembly line? It must yeah, have been yeah, yeah. just yeah, like you know, yeah, people doing yeah. that. Like, no, it was, it's, it, was, it was pieces of metal the size of this room coming out the roof and spanging a bit of metal into the shape of a Cortina front bonnet <laughs> yeah. door. You know, no, so it. yeah, I was like, flipping it. So when I said I didn't want to do that, the careers officer gave me a pamphlet and said, well, these are your choices, the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force, son. Good luck. Really? Seriously. That he actually it? said that. He actually said Army, Navy, What, what did your old man say? Well, my old man, my old man wanted me to be a, um, a customs officer. Really? That's a, yeah. Those are dubious people. Well, this was on the River Thames, so uh-huh. there's a lot of that going on. But if they also had to... Um, that they also had to police the specific gravity of the beer at the Ironcoop Brewery in Romford. Yeah. And that, that seemed to be a perk that my dad really <laughs> thought that was a good perk. He, 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 he didn't want me to work in a car factory. Because really. he knew it was hard and soulless and it was, horrendous. Yeah. It wasn't going, you wouldn't go but it was, It's interesting to me that just, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what I understand about, about Britain, that like, you know, his idea of another secure position was a civil servant job. Yeah, it was, yeah, of which there were quite a few. Yeah. And actually, you know, there was, you know, when I did leave, finally leave school, I bought myself a suit and got a job in a shipping company, um, of which there's a lot on the river, you know, they bring containers You got the a river. boat? No, 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 no. Oh. I was in the sh- office of the shipping company. Okay. They were shipping containers yeah, in yeah. from all over the world. The big things. Yeah, yeah I yeah. hated it. I really yeah. hated it. I thought, this isn't for me, so I, I, when did, you, when did you pick up the guitar? Well, I picked up the guitar just around the time I was leaving school. I was 16. Kid next door had an electric guitar. I could hear him playing through the wall. He came in and taught me the Rod Stewart songbook. And really? I picked up, yeah, and I was into Bob Dylan. And most Bob Dylan songs are only three, three chords. So Yeah, and, and really Rod easy. Stewart, like Rod Stewart faces, Rod Stewart? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah faces, oh, really? yeah. So, yeah. The faces, yeah. Yeah, I can definitely hear that. Yeah, and so... Um, so me and him kind of knocked around for a few years, and then... Uh, what kind of guitar was that first one? <clears throat> uh, the first guitar I had was a pretend uh, copy of a Gibson 335. I was a big Chuck Berry fan as Yo, well. Oh, Chuck Berry. Yeah, John yeah. Lennon played one of those? Yeah. Was it red? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. 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 When, let me ask you a question. When you learned that, that Chuck Berry beginning, mm. wasn't that like you'd been given a key to the universe? When yeah, you were kind of. Yeah. I'm, never that, I'm, I'm not really that kind of guitar player. Man. No, but, I, I, but you know. I'm, a, I'm basically a rhythm guitar player. When I was right. in a band with a kid next door and a guy around the corner with the drums and the floating bass players yeah i was i was the guy in the band who you couldn't really tell what he was doing until he stopped playing <laughs> right, you could right. there was a hole oh my god there's then, holes yeah, everywhere. yeah yeah then suddenly yeah. He plays against and i'm still that kind of guitar player i mean and my son also plays the guitar he, he recently um how old is he he's 19 and when he was about he learned when he was about six 15 yeah and we were in the car one you day and he started was, late he learned off of um he learned off of uh, guitar hero free which is really weird, isn't it? That's it, how we learned how to yeah, play. Yeah, I don't know if you ever played guitar here. I have. But there's, there's a strum bar. Sure. And you have to strum in time. Right. And if you've done that for six months, you can naturally hear a record and strum in time. And one of the hardest things, I think, learn to play guitar is to get your right hand to do something different from your left hand. You don't know where to look. But yeah. if you've already got the strum... You, can, yeah, you he, just got to get your muscles together. His mates together. came around and, yeah. and, and showed him how to play on, on the bass string of one of my electric guitars the three chords that make up most of Barbara O'Reilly by The Who. <laughs> Dum, dum, <laughs> yeah. dum. Yeah. And he played along with it. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I showed him another place to put his second finger on the second string. Yeah, he could have went right to you. you were right no, there. no, no, yeah. no, no. He didn't want to do that. But yeah, I showed yeah. him that. I just showed him how to put his second finger on yeah. and play Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. Oh, that's and important. I never had to show him another. So, the, so that was that's a key to the universe, too. That yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's all you need, really. So, you know, he's better than I was. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's a proper guitar player. So you start playing. This like- is the thing I was going to tell you about. Yeah. Um, we're in the car, and the uh, uh, another girl, another planet came on, and oh, he said, yeah. "Wow, the Dad. only ones." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "Wow, 
can I play it? Can I play that? I said, yeah, yeah it's four chords. It's like um, Cowboy Song yeah. by Finn Lizzy, but the other way around. Yeah. I'll show you when we get home. Yeah. So I, I show him how to play it, yeah. and he says, great. You know, it's yeah. like 15. Yeah. He says, show me the lead part. I said, oh, I can't play the lead part. You'd have to ask one of the guys in my band. He, said, he looked at me and said, how do you mean? I said, well, I don't play that. Song. He said, but, but you're a guitar player, Dad. And I could see myself shrinking in his oh. eyes, you know. So I said to him, look, Jack, have you ever heard Johnny Ramone play lead guitar? And he said, no, I haven't. He's a huge Ramones fan. Yeah. He said, no, I haven't. Okay, he said, well, I'm that kind of guitar player. I'm a rhythm guitar player. Yeah. Listen to my records. Yeah. You know? yeah. I'm not I'm not Jimi Hendrix. So Greg. So he kind of, he was like, had he, he listened to your records before? Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> I've heard him trying to play them. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, one night, one night, uh, uh, his mum sent me upstairs to tell him to turn that shit down and I heard he was trying to play a New England oh. of my songs and so I called him up and we stood on the land and listened to him but he couldn't get that last chord so yeah. it would always end with him cursing yeah. I'd get right to the end of it and he'd be dump 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 it was great did you step in no didn't want to spoil it because I don't you know I don't want it because you know he's he doesn't use, you know he, when he plays in his band he doesn't use our surname he uses his mum's surname yeah, he doesn't yeah. want to be you know sort of like in your shadow. Drumming. No, why would he want to do that? And yeah. I, I respect that. I do respect that. You know? Yeah, I've had uh, so, a couple of wives that felt yeah. the same way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. What do I got to be associated with you for? Exactly. Everywhere yeah. I go, I'm your wife. Yeah. I don't no, have any cool. kids. He's yeah. cool. You know, he's cool. He's cool like that. And so, I, and, and so I'm kind of like vicariously living it all through him again, which is great. Is it? Yeah, he's good. Yeah. It's cool. So you're 16. You're, I mean, you're you know, I always, I always imagine that we'd... Kick a soccer ball around yeah. together, you know. He was never interested in soccer. In when his primary school, this is what before the age of eleven. Yeah, his school won the um, the local school championship. There were twelve boys in the class. There's eleven kids in a football team. Yeah, every kid was in the team except him. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I was like, I'm okay with that. I'm not going to say nothing. I didn't say nothing. Are you a soccer freak? I am. I'm a big soccer freak. I never said a single word about it because, uh, you know, it's him. There's you, no point in me doing that. Anyway. You didn't say, you go out, in front, day, of that, go out day, in front of the house and kick a ball around one, by yourself waiting for No, he, we used to kick around, but he, yeah. he, he just used it as a, and it used to kick me and get me on the floor and jump on me, which is right. fine. Yeah. But one day we were driving somewhere and Moonlight Mile by the Rolling Stones came on. And uh, at the end, there's a great bit, as I'm sure you're familiar with, where Keith Richards plays a riff on the string section. Yeah, yeah, Join yeah. in, and yeah. they get louder and louder. And I was saying this to him, you know, listen to this, how this, and he's like, oh, it's incredible. It's like almost like he's leading. I was like, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? And there was a sort of like a pause and a bit of silence, and we drove on, and I said, you know, Jack, I never had this conversation with my dad. And he said, yeah, it's great, isn't it? And I thought, okay, this is who we are. This is where we're going to meet. This is where we're going to meet. And it's been great. I have to tell you, it has been great. Over Moonlight then. Mile. Well, over introducing no, him to great. music that that's I great. love. That's great. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of proud, but sorry to say that he that all the music on his iPad is my iPad. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't, you know, he says some great things to me. Are you familiar with the song um, Father and Son by Dom, uh, by um, Harry Stevens? Cat Stevens. Oh, Cat Stevens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cat yeah, Stevens. Yeah. I mean, it, all my life, that to me, there's a song about me and my dad, how he never understood me, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Great, some great lines. It's a there. beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. And he yeah. says, you know, uh, if they were right, I'd agree, but it's them they know, not me. Yeah. And now I know I must get away. I mean, it's so been about What's me and my dad. What's the chorus about that? What's the chorus uh, of that song? It's a, far, just, it's just a kind of narrative. It's a narrative. Right, yeah, right, right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful song. Anyway, one day he came home from uh, college. I picked him up in the car and he... He said, oh, I heard a great song on the iPad, iPod today, Dad, Father and Son by Cat Stevens. Have you heard it? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard it. He said, God, it's so about me and you. 
I bumped the car up the curb. I bumped up the curb. I was like, really? You think so? I was heartbroken. But that's it, you know, that's what we that's what we bond over. Well, isn't that the beauty of that yeah. song? That the timelessness of the dynamic is just a dynamic. It's yeah. not it's not specific. And the great thing is now whenever I whenever I hear it, I think of him and my dad. I think of both of them, the two most important guys in my life. Right. Never, who sadly never met. Yeah. So, you know, that's the great the great dis- so was your dad, did he live long enough to see your success as a, no, he never, a singer? No, oh, no really? he passed away when I was 18. I mean, he saw me play in the back room with a band, but yeah. no, he never saw me be successful, sadly. Oh, so yeah. it's a real shame because none of the people that I love dearly, you know, my partner, my son, my dear friends, you know, none of them knew him. Uh-huh. So it's it's the, that's the to me it's that's the great the worst the saddest thing in my life is that my dad never met my son that was the one thing that would I, if I could change anything I would have wished that they could have met each other because I think it would have been a great thing for both of them oh, I bet yeah. I bet so when you started playing you know uh, when you were sixteen or seventeen and you were starting to get the hang of it I mean did you did you just lock in or did it was that it and you started- kind of I was writing a lot of stuff you know I was writing before I I was writing songs before I could learn to play the guitar was- so you didn't go you didn't have to take a uh, you, you did the shipping job but you didn't do anything else yeah I didn't no, I did the shipping job and I went to France and bummed around France for a couple of months and then I came back from there and Dad got ill. Yeah. And then that was 76. Dad passed away in 76. And then in the winter of 1976, punk happened. And that just changed everything. All yeah. of a sudden, I threw out all my Eagles records, cut my hair, chucked away my flares. This was it. This was it. This was what year was zero. It, what was right before uh, punk, really? What was going on? Because I talked to you, out of all people, I talked to Huey Lewis. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had gone over there with sort of a yeah. roots band. Yeah. Uh, Clover. Yeah. And uh, and like and then well like, the weird thing I mean they played on one of the key records from that period they Elvis played, Costello yeah, and Miami's Miami True, True right that's 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 Clover yeah but there was a thing going on in London called pub rock right which never really broke I mean there were bands like you know probably the high point was Grand Park on the Rumor bands like Bringley Swartz which had um, Nick Lowe yeah know, yeah yeah uh, I've had Nick I talked yeah, to Nick yeah it's basically bands like Clover coming over and playing in pubs in London and turning on people to sort of like what you might call in America bar music we didn't right. have that scene because you can hear some Grant Dr. Parker Dr. Feelgood right. were really powerful in it you well. can hear Grant Parker in Elvis yeah in the early Elvis I mean but you can just definitely just got a bit more edge to it and you got a bit more well, sort of lyrically, blood and thunder yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. blood and thunder is yeah. that what you call it yeah, yeah, yeah well yeah. whatever it is I like that though piss and wind I don't know whatever no, you want to call it blood and thunder is good he's got a bit more Park. I love Parker, by the way, but I think Elvis is out. And but you can hear the own. influence, I think, yeah. early yeah. on. Yeah. So, okay, sure. so pub rock is sort of, you know, trying to... That's happening at grassroots, you know. Yeah. People are, are connecting with music at grassroots. Yeah. The Rolling Stones are playing Earl's Court Stadiums, the beginning of stadium rock in the UK. 76. In 76, I saw oh. the Stones at Earl's Court and the Who at Charlton Football Ground within a week of each other. So they're huge, and I'm trying to think, what album would the Stones be touring on 76? Uh, uh, Black and Blue. Really? Yeah, Black and Blue. No, I saw that tour. Yeah. That, oh, okay. So, yeah. it, okay. So it was. Uh, it was. The, it was there almost a resurgence. Yeah. It was Woody just joined. Oh man. So you love him, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Being a Faces fan, that was. We thought that was great. It took me a long time to come around to the Faces, just because I couldn't get past Rod Stewart. But you know, once I got past, well, Rod you know, started, if you focus on the Ronnie Lane aspect of it, the Ronnie great. Wood, uh, it's great. Together, I mean, Ooh La La in some ways. Great. The last album is a great record because Stewart's not on it so much. Yeah, it's a great you know, record. Yeah, great. Record. Uh, all right, so that's what's going on in the stadium. Yeah. So who on uh, Who Are You tour probably? Probably, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what tour it was, but they were, they, you know, it was still, still with Keith Moon. It was a but great... those are the dinosaurs, literally the no, dinosaurs. No, no, they were the bands we really liked. But, but I mean, we they were very established. But they were moving away from the public. Right. Okay. That's right. Okay. Okay. We're yeah. getting the jets and yeah. Led yeah. Zeppelin were flying around America and, you know. Zeppelin. And, 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 and pub rock was kind of like writing at the roots. And punk kind of came out of that circuit. 
So pub rock was more of a, a, a literally a roots rock thing your too, local right? Boozer. Go down your lo- local boozer and country see, driven see. We, a little bit. Yeah, there was a big country influence. It was kind yeah. of like roots music, R and B. Yeah, yeah. You know, there right. were bands that were playing right, right. Like Southside Johnny the Asbury Dukes type sure. music. You yeah, know. yeah. It was yeah. kind of back. It was kind of back to basics movement, which yeah. was what punk also was. Right. You know, at the same time as that was happening in the U.S., the Ramones were playing CBGBs. Right. Exactly the same thing. Doctor Feelgood were doing the same thing. Back to R and B. But no one knew them yet. No, right. No, because but something was percolating with the, come, the dolls and everybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those bands were really only broke because they were taken seriously in England. The, the New Ramones. York Dolls, yeah, the New York Dolls, uh, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the uh, uh, Flaming Groovies, yeah. You know, they were bands that were that broke out first in England, right? Uh, Blondie, yeah. Television, Talking Heads. You Why know. do you think that is? Well, I think we were more ready to hear something different. I mean, if you think, you know, in 1976 was the year of uh, Frampton Comes Alive. Yeah, I remember, so you know, yeah. rumors. Ooh, baby, I love your way. Exactly. exactly. Rumors was a pretty good record, though. It was a good record, and that's where music was at the time. It was in California. So yeah. some dirty, growly, you know, sort of Richard Hell and the Voidoids coming in. Oh, yeah, uh, that's man. Gonna, you know, that's not going to really... That's not really going to sort of like get the beards at Rolling Stone, the long ears, right. coming in and saying, you know, everything you know is wrong. Right. That's so, not going to cheer anybody up, is yeah, it? Yeah. So, so that, that's a kind of year zero idea, and that, that really struck a chord with me because everything we liked about The Who... Um, was in the jam. Yeah. And they were our age. Yeah. Everything we liked about the Stones was in the clash. Right. And they were our age. So suddenly it was as close as us as I am to you now. And that, that was And you felt the incredibly, greatness. Yes. You felt the moment. You felt this was our generation's moment, you know, because we'd had to put up with the hippies and they'd had to put up with the the rockers. Right. You know, and the hippies attempted to overcome the, the, the greasers. Yeah. And we were now trying to sweep away the bloody hippies <laughs> who promised peace and love and delivered us nothing except patchouli oil and caftans. I like patchouli oil. Well, you know, <laughs> what you do in your spare time is your business but there was something yeah. more exciting in uh, in speed and, 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 and what was it informed like at that time could you feel uh uh that it was operating against the politics almost immediately or yeah. was it yeah well uh, punk in the uk was very political because at the same time as that there was a movement uh, on the far right particularly centered in london called the national front right and their argument was to round up all people of color and, and get rid them, of them in right. inverted color inverted commas home yeah even though some of them have been born in london it's right. a ridiculous idea but at that time there were so few people of color that it was actually i think i certainly thought it would they, they could do it I really believe they could do it. And what that meant to me was a huge loss in my culture. Yeah. I love reggae music. And also the, love- the idea that fascism could happen in England yeah. at that time. Yeah. And that, you know, that something equivalent Those to- Those guys are always around in every country. Right. But, you but know, when you feel they, that- you Each generation has to find a way to deal with them. And my generation, we dealt with them by mixing punk with reggae and coming up with rock against racism. Yeah, yeah. And that's what politicized me. The first political activism I ever took part in was going to see the clash at a rock against racism gig in London in uh, in uh, 1978. Uh-huh. And, and that- I came away with a different perspective of the world from that gig. I mean, one of the things that happened there was that um, <clears throat> the guy who was top of the bill was a guy named Tom Robinson who had a song called Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, yeah. which now sounds a bit trite, but back then you could get your head kicked in yeah. for even suggesting sure. that you were gay. It was yeah. a very brave. He was a very brave, brave guy. Yeah. When he started singing, yeah. these guys around us began kissing each other on the lips. Now, yeah. I, you know, coming from a working class background, I'd never seen an out gay man before. Yeah. So... It was a bit of a shock. And then my initial feeling was, why are these guys at Rock Against Racism? It's about black people. <laughs> but by the end of Don't the day... they have their own thing? Yeah, by the end of the day, what's all this about? Yeah. By the end of the day, the, the, the penny had dropped that the fascists were against anybody who was in any way different. Right. And so I sort of made a commitment to be with the different people. So that's where you connected the politics of the yeah. people... 
With the audience, though, this sure. is the real thing. It wasn't the music. It wasn't. But the I, band. I think it's interesting that that moment where mm. you realize that something like the National Front could actually succeed mm. is is really the, the, yeah, the difference. But, but that we could fight them with our culture. Right, that was the key thing. We could fight them with our culture. The thing that bound us together was that we all like Desmond Decker. Yeah, and you the, know the Israelites. And, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, sure, or, you know, why not? It's simple yeah, as that. It's yeah. as simple as that. It's a great we took it. You know, I mean, there's been very little music to come out of the islands that I was born in that's not been influenced by the music of Black America. One right. way or the other. I mean, Bob Marley and the Whalers, hugely influenced by the Impressions, hugely influential to us. You know, Desmond Deck and the Israelites, you know, big fans of Curtis Mayfield and those guys. So, uh, you know. So it, it came around that way. Everything comes around, goes around. Between, you know, the exchange between uh, the British Isles and and, uh, and the United States of America has been nothing but a positive. But that reggae beat was sort of pure to the Caribbean, though, wasn't it? Was, it was, but they were initially, if you listen to the harmonies on the Whalers records, yeah. they're, they're, they're going for the, it's the Impressions that are there. But you know, in the way in the way that the Beatles played, you know, Motown. So you're saying that some some part of what made them, you know, popular was taken from uh, their American black culture. Yeah, their inspiration. But was, that yeah. beat that became the the the, offbeat, the, yeah. the, the, the ska beat. Yeah, that, that was purely theirs. Yeah, and it's that, like the Beatles. You know, the Beatles were yeah, purely British, but they started out playing yeah. black American music. I mean, if the Beatles and the only, Everly Brothers, you know, yeah. if, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. had only played English music. So I mean, yeah, my, yeah. my father grew up. In an England where you could only hear English music, only eat English food, and only wear English Ugh, clothes. I, I mean, imagine yeah, I don't even, how awful that was. I don't even know what that music exactly. would be. Exactly. No, I did, did <laughs> dare not think what it might be. But you know, it's that it's that cross pollination, that cross counter, uh, cross cultural pollination. And that, that was the British. The that that along that time though, the British ska resurrection happened as well, right? That kind of came in the wake of Rock Against Racism. That was '78. Was Rock Against Racism. '79 was Two Tone. Right. And uh, my partner, Juliet, who now manages me, she managed one of the bands. She managed a selector. I remember them. A yeah, great yeah, band. Yeah. I just found some photographs of her as a 22-year-old managing them around America. I mean, oh incredible God. sort of photographs. And she just looks so great. I put them all on Facebook for people to see. So that's kind of like in, the, in deep in our family now, that whole two-tone kind of thing so when you started playing with the who was the, who was in the outfit when you your first band and uh, guys was, I, went, I went to school with the kid next door yeah you know we were in a little punk band we put out a record on Chiswick Records it didn't yeah. go nowhere but we might you know if it had just been that if I'd have just put one punk record out in 1978 I'd have been happy I'd have got it out of the shed to show people you yeah, know, yeah, every yeah. 20 years yeah. grandpa was a punk rocker you know I'd have been happy with that yeah but as it was um when um, was it just guitar, bass, drums, or two uh, guitars? Two guitars, bass, okay. and drums. Yeah, and I was the main songwriter and, and singer. singer. Yeah, and rhythm guitar. Uh, and when that, that all kind of went tits up, and uh, why did why did you why did it go tits up? Uh, because punk kind of ran out of steam. It did. Yeah, within got, two years, it got replaced by guys with synthesizers and interesting haircuts. Thomas Dolby. Yeah, Tom Dolby, Pitch Up Boys, all those kind of guys, and there wasn't really any room for us. So I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to press the eject button. Yeah. on this life so I joined the British Army for a while learned to drive a tank really? yeah I what, did yeah what part of you thought that was a good idea? remember what my career officer said to me? really? and it just came back around so you were that you were young enough you were politically informed at this point and you thought that music had a purpose and that things could change and you had power and a voice and you you opted for, well, the, for that the, the British Army is a volunteer army okay and has always been a great sponge for white working class lads with, who just want to get away yeah, from, yeah. <laughs> from the reality right. of their home yeah within uh i did my basic training i was pretty good at it but i realized that actually it really wasn't the answer to my problems but that i it kind of fired me up with an urgency to go back and have one more go and the the 
The scariest, most exciting way I could do that, I thought, was to do it solo with an electric guitar. Yeah, that's a pretty adventurous way to do it. Yeah, and I felt, you know, because I'd done everything the Army But what did you do in the Army, though? What exactly were your... Tank driver. You were just a tank driver. In the Royal Army Corps, yeah. And did you go anywhere and drive the tank? No, not really, no. I did my basic (laughs) training. I can... can, uh, So you just got to drive a tank around? uh, Well, not much. I didn't get... They don't let you straight on the tank. You've got to learn... You've got to do basic training first. You've got to do the fitness, the machine gun, the grenade. Made the you know skin and the simulator is there the, simulators no it's not like that it's, it's agricultural pull oh really two forward pull one back on a small tank oh, I okay. mean I they didn't really let us near anywhere near them that was the next bit but the the, the sad truth is when you've driven one tank you've driven them all really uh, so I bailed mm. out of that but it put me back on the streets yeah. with a huge sense of confidence because I thought you know I've shat the British army out yeah. I can certainly deal with a couple of drunk you can just leave on a, well you can buy yourself out Really? Because it's a volunteer army. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you sign up for nine years and they teach you to be a telecommunications expert yeah. and you leave after three years, you have to pay them a shitload of money. Right. But if you've just done your basic training, it's £175 and, and they don't pay you during basic training. They give you 250 quid at the end of it. So yeah. I thought, you know what, I'll cash in my chips. Thanks very much. I was interested. It was like a sabbatical, really. That's the yeah. effect it had on me. It sort of like made me think... I could do anything. But was there any sense uh, of uh, a recollection of the experience you had seeing your, the, the auto factory? That, was there any connection to the army that, you, that became like, well, this is a killing machine or that, any of that? The mechanization. You can't really think about that when you join the army. You right. Can't, you can't really, but in retrospect. Can't really, I mean, at the time, actually, I thought the Cold War was going to heat up. It was around the time of solidarity in Poland. Uh, Brezhnev had died. Reagan had come in. Thatcher was in. They were ramping up the Cold War. I thought the whole shit house was going to go up in flames and I just didn't want to be sitting on my ass at my mum's house when it happened I wanted to know and be there and just fucking do it you, you know? wanted to be part of it no <laughs> I just wanted to know it was coming and not be living a stupid little life so, doing a stupid little job in a stupid little town right uh, so you figured why not be in a tank and be up front it seemed like a good idea at the time <laughs> I, don't, I don't recommend it I don't recommend it to anyone alright so okay so you leave I mean, you're full of the beans uh, blood and thunder yeah you, you got your guitar. What yeah. kind of guitar was that? It was a, a, a Les Paul Junior copy made by a subsidiary of uh, Gibson called Arbiter. And the great like thing about thing? it was... <clears throat> it kind of... Ha- yeah. No, it was a double cutaway. Oh, but yeah. the, like that thing, yeah. it had it had an original P90, Gibson P90 pickup on it. You can dirty that thing up. Really good. I think yeah. they got them... All, when I, it was, they started building them around the time they stopped making uh, ES-125s. Uh-huh. And I think they had all these P90s and they put them on these cheapo European guitars. They just left over. Yeah. yeah. And they sounded great. Oh, they yeah. Sounded you really can make... You can, yeah, yeah. Really, like that. Like that yeah. one does. Well, there's like those... Are, <clears throat> and that's how you sort of played the first couple of records, right? Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm playing on the first album. Just but me you solo. Wait, but you hit the streets. Yeah, I started doing gigs. I started opening for anyone who, who could and would. And, uh, but that's sort of a unique approach to take an electric guitar that sounds filthy or has a good distortion well, to yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the thing was, if I'd have took an acoustic guitar, I would have ended up playing folk clubs to twee little audiences drinking real ale. Did I you consider yourself that. a folk singer? No, I consider myself a punk rock, and I still do. I think that's what made you like uh, it big, taking the world. Yeah. You know, do it yourself. Right. You know, I pay for this new album. That was the spirit. You know, that's just come out. I pay. I'm paying. You know, I'm paying for that great big tour bus parked down the road. No record company paying for it. Right. 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 For nothing. DIY. And that was uh, punk is an attitude. It's not a haircut. Right. But you were really the first guy to do that. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer now, but it, but it's absolutely true. I was the first person to come out with an electric guitar. And when I came to America, yeah. the first time I came to America, I was mad. Echo and the Bunnymen. Yeah. 
put me on the back of the tour bus. And they actually, the real support was the flesh tones, but they put me on in between the flesh tones while they changed over. I wasn't announced. Nobody heard me. You I came out. I cranked up this little amp, and I just blew people's minds. Like, what is this guy doing? Who, <laughs> You know, sort of... 70% of the audience thought I was awful, but the other 30% are still with me. Yeah. They were blown away. They couldn't believe it. They found the record. They come and see me every night. Someone comes up and says, I saw you in 84 with the Bunnyman at XYZ. And I'm like, yeah, that's a crazy trip. And, and they remember, and yeah, they that's where well. the seed was Because it was such a weird thing. A guy with a, you know, at the time I had a, I had a really short hair, white T-shirt, turn up Levi's yeah. and boots and a guitar. I was kind of like, almost like sort of action man guitar hero yeah. thing. You know, I don't know why I was dressed like And I had this kind of contraption that strapped on with a, a amplifier on my back, not on stage, but for doing promo stuff and a couple of speakers. I used to burst into record shops and stuff like that and uh, burst into CMJ uh-huh. uh, when it was uh, when it was first on. When it's still, so it was a lot of fun. Still a raw lot of fun. CMJ. Yeah. Where, like in Austin? Uh, in New York. Okay. So New York oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And was that something that you used to play on the street with or you just built it? No, to, it was just a, it was a total uh, uh, PR stunt. But people remember that as well. More people remember that than you'd ever believe. Yeah. It was such a stupid thing because it, it was like a backpack and it went around your diaphragm and you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't sing because it was, you know, this huge car battery on your back. Yeah. And these great big speakers. If you went through a doorway, it fed back. I don't know what the acoustics are about so it. So was this a preference to you? I mean, having had, you know, fairly little experience with with uh, with playing with, with a rock outfit or with the backing, you know, musicians, yeah. did you feel that, well, the sound is obviously unique and nobody was really doing yeah, yeah. it. And the passion of it, that's the one thing you notice when you listen to, especially, well, all your records, mm. and but those young ones, you're just, you're full yeah. of the fucking fire, man. Well, I mean, I remembered because i'd been a dylan fan i remembered the power of the single individual standing alone telling yeah. his or her truth yeah and that had kind of got lost somewhere in the 80s it kind of disappeared there wasn't anybody in punk in fact you know what that rock against racism gear yeah. there was a guy called patrick fitzgerald who came out and sang punk songs on an acoustic guitar and he got bottled off huh. and i remember thinking what an idiot yeah coming out solo in a punk gig you bloody fool Three years later, there was I, but I didn't make his mistake. I, I let that your Gibson, guitar, yeah, you and I cranked yourself. it. I cranked it. The audience got noisy. I cranked it another notch. You know, nobody, ain't nobody going to get one over on me. So, and okay, so the, when you toured with Echo and the Bunnymen, that was after like eighty four. That was so you did two records already. That was the second record, just around the time the second record was coming out. Yeah. And when did you sort of uh, what what broke you out? What, what was it? The uh, minor you know, strike. Yeah. The miners' strike. In 1984, the National Union of Mine Workers went on strike and for a year engaged in a really, you know, a form of class war through boycotts right. and picket right. lines with the Thatcher government. And the right. Thatcher government brought to bear the entire power of the state on them and brought them to their knees. And in the context of that, because, you know, because I'd thought about Dylan and, and Phil Oakes and those guys, yeah. and now I was in a position to see... Oh, to do it. Well, to see, not yeah. to do it, yeah. but to see if pop music could make any kind of difference to actually go into the cold first right. I was solo right you know my contemporaries had big bands and, and big entourages but I could jump on a train literally with a little amp you know do the Woody Guthrie thing yeah exactly yeah. do that take the news up there with an the, electric bring guitar it, of course bring yeah. the news back you know what would happen and that kind of defined me I think for a lot of people and I don't have a problem with that you know that's what it was politicised me because obviously before the minor strike, I had strong humanitarian principles because I'd been involved in the anti-racist struggles, but I didn't really have classic politics. You know, yeah. I had to, I had to, because I was keeping on their flaws. Yeah. You know, the the miners' families wanted to know 
you know, what were my politics? Why was I doing this? Was I just a pop star doing it for publicity? Or did but I actually were you a believe? pop star at that point, really? No, I wasn't. But, you know, someone up from London, you yeah. know, they're bound to want to know. And yeah, what, you're going into what, what are your you politics? Know, severe, what do you know? Can, you know, you can, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Man? Right. So you're going to severe working class conditions with an electric guitar with people that are not necessarily. But they're my people. They're no really dope different, you know, the place right. where I came but, from. But they don't know punk rock. Well, necessarily. not really, no. Right. No, they don't really... So you, you got know. a message, you got a guitar, it might um, be a little yeah. loud for them, but yeah. they want to know where you stand. Yeah, <laughs> Why are you here? Yeah, which is fair enough. Yeah. So I had to develop my own, you know, uh, in. I had to develop <clears throat> something that I could articulate to them in their terms. So I ended up, you know, sort of thinking of myself as a socialist, as a democratic socialist, as opposed to a, you know, a revolutionary socialist, right. an up against the wall and shoot them socialist, a socialist who believes that if everybody has a say through the ballot box, things would be better. Because for me, socialism, if it means anything, uh, has at heart to be a form of organized compassion. Yeah. You, know, you can't be there to, to look after the sick and to help the poor and to educate the kids, but you can pay some money through taxation to employ people that do that, that take that responsibility to ensure that you make your contribution to a better society. You've benefited from it. You put some in as well, they benefit from it. That idea of socialism is something that's always appealed to me. And it's, a, it's a, again, I say it's not an ideological socialism. It's a more of a, a humanitarian idea but in you know it makes sense in in the way that we talked about politics in the 20th century and it also makes sense in the sense of uh government accountability yeah. for the yeah. the betterment of the people yeah but we're all accountable and the government is the is the mechanism through which we right. express our our responsibility they're not the enemy yeah they're not necessarily i mean they do do shouldn't be things, shouldn't you know, be shouldn't I mean, that be. famous ronald reagan um saying what's the worst thing you can ever hear i'm from the government i'm here to help you know it's easy to say that until your street is flooded Right, right. You know, everyone's yeah, yeah. everyone's a libertarian until their streets flooded. Yeah, yeah. You know? Until so, they, until yeah. the cops don't come. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. how do you think they put that that um, machine on Mars that's just discovered dust on yeah. Mars? You know, you think the private enterprise did that? No. <laughs> Who put man on the moon? Probably the most yeah. amazing thing that happened when I was a kid. You guys went to the moon. You yeah. think private company did that? No. You think no? They are now. Well, let's see. Yeah, let's see if they manage to do we, it. We, you know, maybe you can take see. a guitar. Maybe Richard Branson can fly you to the moon, let's and you can play me. up I'm there. I'm not going up with anything he owns. <laughs> get it? I've heard tubular bells. But when, when, but even that, even you know, discussing uh, you know socialism with miners during a strike. Yeah. I mean, did they find? Did, how were the audiences for that when you got up there and played? I well, mean, they were. You know, they were pretty fired up. You mm -hmm. know, you're mostly fundraising. But, um, you know, yeah. their wives, they would be on the picket lines or they would be in jail. Their wives would come and speak. They were pretty fiery women. And, you you, you know, you learn some amazing things. You know, uh, one of the first shows I did, uh, there was I went up there, you know, with my fiery punk rhetoric. Yeah. And there was some 70-year-old guy singing a cappella, old minor called Jock Purden, yeah. Yeah. with his finger in his ear, singing songs that were much more radical than my songs. Yeah. So I had to sort of, like, recalibrate from punk rock back down to realize that I was... By standing up with the miners, I was joining a tradition that Jock Purden was part of, and before that, they were, Woody was part of. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and I was, I was like ready for that. I was ready to be part of that to see if it is possible to, to change the world through music. And and then uh, on the back of that, when the miners were defeated, I got together with a load of other musicians yeah. to support the Labour Party in an attempt to defeat Margaret Thatcher at the eighty-seven election. We had a little organisation called Red Wedge, yeah. which was in another way to push because one of the things about the Clash. One of the reasons why I think they failed to change the world was they never engaged with mainstream politics. They held their nose and wouldn't go near it. But I, you know, why do you think that was? Just a musical decision? Uh, a bunch of fucking posers. <laughs> 
but I love them dearly. But they were, you know, <laughs> yeah. too much style over not yeah. enough content sometimes. Uh-huh. That's you know, yeah, it, it pains me to say that, but I learned more from their mistakes than I did from their their victories. So you know, we we came together with people like the Style Council, the Smiths, yeah. Madness. Yeah, um, we went on tour. We brought MPs into the foyer to talk to people. It was a real a real attempt to see if music and politics do mix and if it can end up with anything well Thatcher won in 87 that's not our fault right uh, and I just look back and say well look you know when it push came to shove I did the absolute most I could do I couldn't have done any more I pushed it as far as I could it's to the next generation now to see how far they can take it but I, I came away with some some very important observations that music can't change the world but it can change your perspective you can give you another perspective of the world, but ultimately the responsibility for changing the world is in the, with the audience, not with the You can plant seeds. The yeah. best thing you can do That's is make do, people yeah. go like, I never thought about it that yeah. way. Or, or not only that, but also, you know, we played in uh, Phoenix, Arizona last night where you're probably aware there's a pretty heavy situation there with the Immigration? Yeah. Yeah, with Joe Arpaio. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he's the real character well, of that guy. last night we probably had all the lefties in Phoenix in one room. And maybe some of How those. How big was that room? Yeah, uh, so it was sold out. Okay, it was sold out Crescent Ballroom. But you know, it 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 may be that some of those people work in a place where there's a lot of casual racism. It may be they work in a place where there's sexism, where there's homophobia. Yeah. And for one night, they come together and realise that there are other people in Phoenix who feel like they do. And I'm the lightning rod for that. Yeah. And that's my gig yeah. to charge up their batteries and to send them away thinking, yeah. We, there is a community here, and I'm not alone. Although I may be in a minority in my workplace, I'm not. Because that's what that's why when I went to Rock Against Racism, you know, I worked with a, guys, a bunch of guys who were, you know, really casual racists, so it was shameful. But I, I was I, I was the office junior, so I thought I was in a minority. Yeah. But when I went to that Rock Against Racism gig and there was 100,000 kids just like me, yeah. I realised in my generation yeah. I was in a majority. Uh-huh. And and those guys that, that you grew that up audience, with, yeah, them and yeah. they were, were my generation. You know, yeah. there, was a, there was kids from all over come yeah. to that gig, uh, and and but the th- key thing was, you know, when I went back to work, I, I gave, they gave me the confidence of my convictions, the courage of my convictions, not the clash who we went to see, but the audience. Yeah, and that's how it always is. Yeah. it's the audience ultimately that can be the only real vehicle for change, not the artist. The artist does have an important role, bringing people together, helping to focus their solidarity during the minor strike to raise money, but the artists alone cannot change the world we can only reflect the world and offer offer a different perspective in the way that fox news offers a different perspective the right. ultimate responsibility is with you in the audience not with me on the stage so did the politic did the what was it internationally did that album come out of that that it kind of did because what happens next is that um because uh, now you're sort of defined a little bit i am which is fine i have yeah. no problem with that yeah you know i'm good i'm good for that uh but the cold war comes to an end the berlin wall goes down and all of that rubbish totalitarianism and stalinism is swept away yeah. and i'm glad of that yeah i have no with a few you know, bricks yeah yeah gone yeah destroyed yeah but at the same time the baby in the bar fort is trying to be forced down the plug or our leftist tradition is also going out the window so it was time i felt to to rewrite the words to the international to reflect a more, you know, forward-looking 20th century Leftism. idea of a of a of a of a, a more a greater compassion, you know, progressive. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all happened with Pete Seeger at the uh, Vancouver Folk Festival, where he, he wanted to sing the international, and he told me to sing the English lyrics, which are just tosh. <laughs> arise, ye starvelings from your slumbers. Arise, ye criminals of want. For reason in revolt now slumbers, and here ends the age of can. It doesn't even rhyme. 
Well, I think that's interesting what you're saying that that with the idea that Russia is done that because you know we don't it, the politics it doesn't seem as immediate sometimes here or maybe I wasn't activated mm. but that meant that you know whatever communism represented had somehow you know uh, metaphorically that that means the left is useless too on some level. Yeah, you know, like that yeah. you know, like well, everything's solved. Yeah. We, you know, what do we need leftists yeah. anywhere anymore for? Yeah, that's and that and that's what I was trying to, to push against. Right, right. Because you know the the uh, because it's the not end, about the end, that. The end of you know the 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 incredible change in eight, 1989, and we owe a huge debt of thanks to the German people for resolving that without the Third World War. They did an amazing job, both the East German people, yeah, and the West German people doing that. We could have had a, easily had another conflagration there. Um, that was basically the end of the First World War. Yeah. That period that started in 1914 and ended in 1989 was a period of absolute cataclysm for Europe. Uh-huh. You know, it, it delivered us Hitler, it delivered us, delivered us the Holocaust. You know, it split the continent down the middle. It left millions of people living under a totalitarian rule from Moscow. You know, it was a very, very bad period. And it's celebrations all around. Anybody on the left who misses those days is not a leftist at all. They're a Stalinist. They're a totalitarian. Uh-huh. They're going to put you up against the wall if you disagree with them you know right right so you won't see me complain about that but our tradition our culture um it didn't mean that capitalism had won right that's not what it was really about it right. meant that people had won right and you know capitalism is not an ideology it's merely the way that we organize exchange and we can organize it in different ways one of the problems i have with the revolutionary left is that they don't think you can do shit unless you first overthrow capitalism you know we're trying to save our library from being closed well we've got to overthrow capitalism mate now we're trying to make sure that uh, old people have money to get them through the winter for yeah. heating well yeah we have to overthrow but capitalism but those guys aren't doers they're talkers yeah they're armchair guys. They're selling the newspapers to you. Yeah, yeah. And I've, n- I've never had much time for those guys, I'm afraid, you know, because I, I believe ultimately that we, we shape the world as in, as, as individuals and, and we in Europe recognize that the individual um, is is the key aspect of society, but that, that unless each individual is provided with free health care, free education, decent affordable hours and a proper pension – only the rich and powerful will get to express their individualism and the rest of us will be exploited by them. And that's why we have those things in place, okay? Now, that doesn't mean we're better than you. And by Christ, you know, we have to fight every year to keep those things because the the, the Tories and the right and, and the, the free marketers are trying to chip away at those public services. It's not an easy thing to get. You know, my people went through the cataclysm of the Blitz to, to realize that you know bombs fall on the houses of rich people and poor people the same yeah so it's not an easy thing to do yeah it's not a simple thing to do yeah. but morally yeah as an idea that that we are all supported by the community it's it, i don't i don't see why americans don't grasp it are you familiar with the 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 tradition of barn raising where, sure sure where, yeah you know, yeah they, everybody that's a completely an american tradition and that is what Socialism but, is about but, but what, barn rights. Right, but what happened here that when, you know, the middle class exploded and the baby boom and the suburbs started to become built is that, you know, people got away from that. They got away from the community. They got away from, you know, city centers. They got away from a collective you know, sensibility. Yeah. And everybody was just sort of isolated in these places. And they went to a mall and their, their uh, you know, religious organizations were no longer bringing people together in that way. That's true. And I mean, everything got yeah, very desperate. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's got, it, the promotion of individualism. As a, as a you know in, through the medium of consumerism, is is being quite pernicious. I think you know I, I have no problem in people buying whatever shit they want to buy, provided they've paid their taxes, provided they've paid their whack into society. What you do with your money is your responsibility, but you must first accept. That's not the thing you try to get out of. 
No. Yeah, you, you know, first accept yeah, that. Yeah, you, you accept that you have a responsibility. Civic you know, duty. You know, I mean, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes yeah. who said taxes are the price we pay for civilization. Sure. And, you know, sure. And he's spot on. And, in that yeah, sense. because like if, if you don't do that, what ultimately ends up happening is those people that are, are rich enough to outsmart the tax system, you know, they don't end up paying it. And then, it, you know, they're just uh, they're up in their libertarian castles, mm. you know, you know, shooting poor people yeah. from a turret. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Metaphorically or, or literally. Depends <laughs> yeah. on yeah, depends what they do Absolutely. in their pastime. Yeah. And I, and I think that what you see here a little bit, you know, certainly with the Occupy movement, but also on. When, when it comes right down to responding to what you're saying is that you got a lot of people on the left that talk a lot. Yeah. But the people that, that, that actually do the real work are people that do it on a community yeah. level. They do it on a you know a sort of grassroots yeah. level. You know How can we get this school working properly? Yeah. How can we get this yeah. neighborhood working and you know, properly? Those, those, those people who, who, who talk a lot about the theory yeah. and the sit in the armchairs, one of the things they really hate is religion. But if you go down to the soup kitchen and find out who's giving out the free food, I can assure you you'll find more people of faith there then you will find Marxists. When I see those people who are motivated by their faith to do that kind of work, I find the attitude of Richard Dawkins to, to say to those people they're stupid or they're ignorant because of their faith. I'm not, I, I find that's a form, I, of, I won't do it a form of, uh, of fundamentalism that I'm not comfortable with. No, I won't do it know? either. I won't go there either because, uh, they, you know, they, you, you, you look, if someone's got faith and they're not bothering you and, and that's what they hang their hope on and it gets them by yeah. every day, you know, shut the fuck up. But the Pope <laughs> telling tell him, there's no way the Pope is going to tell me what to do with my genitalia. No, no, you know, forget no, it. no, that's different. But that's, that's barely faith. Yeah, you know, that that's a political system that is outlived almost of control, any of them. Yeah, of control. I mean, this what's going on in the Supreme Court at the moment? Yeah. You know, where they're they're attempting to uphold or, or decide on a law that defines marriage as between a man and a woman. Surely that's discriminatory in, Amer- of course. in America. Of course, surely it is. America, you know, where you have the right to do whatever you choose. Right. Surely that is discrimination. We'll, we'll see how that falls. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing because at this juncture in history, you would think that they'd be like, "All right, you know, just because a bunch of you are uncomfortable with yeah. this, shut up. It's none of your business." Yeah, and then, it's, you know, life, but, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's right. If two gay people decide that getting married in a church makes them happy. Yeah, who are we to say? You know, Absolutely. I'm sorry. We're going to have this incredibly narrow definition. It's like swimming. If it's good for, it's good for. It's not good for if you're. Yeah, straight yeah. and not good for you if you're right. gay. You know, if it's yeah. a good thing. Sure. And I happen to think that anything that promotes a stable relationship. It's good. A loving relationship. Sure. If people feel they need that, it's not necessarily something I you're subscribe free, to. You're, feel free to try it. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have a go. See what happens. You know. I can't guarantee. No, I know that. <laughs> it, it comes with no guarantees. But, you know, pe- people, you know... People love dressing up for a nice day and having their photograph sure, taken sure. all that shit yeah, and going yeah, around yeah. in a white limo. Sure, you know? yeah. And who are we to say, oh, no, you can't do that just because you're you're not... The, yeah, you know. the same sex. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So now uh, we got to fast forward a little bit to yep. the, you know, the... Because I... What, what do you think your big, you know, the, the song, if you were going to, you know, track to a song, what do you think was the song that broke oh, you Oh, I would think probably... Um, in the UK, it would be something like Between the Wars, which was during the minor strike. But here in America, it would perhaps be Sexuality. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, that was the initial sort and of And Waiting burst. for the Great Leap Forward. Great Leap Forward as well. But then what happens is there's a second phase when I hook up with Woody Guthrie and Wilco for Mermaid Avenue. Well, that's what I want to talk to you and about. And that sort of, that, that was a really good thing to happen to me. Because, because all the people to, that knew you in the 80s, they you know, they were yeah, all established. Kind of, yeah, then, it kind of brought in the Wil- younger Wilco fans. But right. Also, all those old grey beards who were hanging out with Pete Seeger. Who loved Which Guthrie. was just brilliant. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And did you brilliant. meet Pete Seeger? Uh, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, did a, I did a very early on. I mean, but... I didn't really know a huge amount about Woody. I knew who he was and why he was important, but you couldn't find his records in England in the 70s. So it was only when I came to America that I was able to buy his records. And early on at one uh, folk festival in Canada, Vancouver, they said to me a couple of months before, you know, would you like to take, you're coming to do the main stage, would you like to do a workshop? 
you know, where you sit down with four other artists and take it in turn to play songs. Yeah. So I said, oh, that sounds interesting. Well, we're doing a Woody Guthrie workshop. And I thought, well, I know a couple of Woody Guthrie songs, yeah, you know, because yeah, sure. you don't have to play three songs. Yeah. Because it's like goes round. Yeah, it's a round thing. And um, so, I, you know, I don't think any more about it. I turn up on the day. And the other three participants in the Woody Guthrie workshop are Pete Seeger, yeah. Arlo Guthrie, right. and Rambling Jack Elliott. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think to myself, <laughs> my ass is toast here. This is really bad. Because I'm like, suppose they play the three songs I know. Yeah. But then I look on, Rambling Jack sat next to me. And on top of his guitar, he's got, a, as an Ada memoir, he's got a bit of paper with loads of titles. And I'm yeah. looking at it, and I think, oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. Oh, I can busk that here. Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, and I'm, and I get away with it until yeah, at the end. Yeah. Seeger stands up like yeah. a tall, uh, you know, uh, uh, Californian mm-hmm. redwood, mm-hmm. and and begins to sing, "This land is your land." Yeah. And the audience sing the first verse with him, and then Arlo stands up and yeah. he sings the second verse. This land, I'm thinking, oh shit, because we don't sing it in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you know. Uh, uh, Rambly yeah, Jack, yeah. Jack sings a verse, and, it, and they throw it to me, and I'm like, listen, listen, guys, you know, I'm really sorry, but <laughs> this is one of those songs we don't do in, in, in England, this land, you know. Is, yeah. I, I just don't know the geography. Yeah. I'm really sorry. Did you get a laugh? I, I did, yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of sympathy. And eventually, Nora Guthrie, you know, gave me a seat at that table. Oh, by, yeah. By inviting me to, to make Mermaid Avenue. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She actually kind of, I'm a kind of made man now. Uh-huh. Oh, good, you know? good, good. I mean, it wasn't because of that, but, yeah. but, but, but her, her trust and her inviting us into the into the archive to look at the songs it's interesting because the song on that record that i you know sort of resonated with the most because of the melody was uh california Star. yeah it's, what I a just, great song oh, fucking love it Amazing. And it's, you know and it's the most sort of like it's just a poetic yeah. thing and what he wrote loads of songs like that. i mean he wrote a song on uh, about one of shagging with bergman on a on a italian oh, yeah, volcano yeah, 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 yeah. he wrote a song about riding a flying saucer but that was part you know, of the folk tradition is like well, you know, he, telling you personal know, stories, right? Yeah, he, well, he was just a songwriter. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, I mean, the thing is, that the songs that we know him for, he actually wrote in the 30s and recorded them when he came to New York in the 40s. But the songs he wrote in the 40s yeah. were much more like pop songs. I mean, he was living in New York when it was perhaps the most exciting, vibrant cultural city in the Western world. You know, bebop was was being born there, uh, R&B as we know it was being yeah. was happening there. And he was, he was, you know, hip to all this stuff. Yeah. He was into all that sort of sh- stuff. And it, and it reflected through what he wrote. Yeah. You know, he was a populist songwriter. He wasn't just a folk songwriter. Right. And how did, uh, how did uh, the, you get along with, uh, or how did it get hooked up with Wilk? Why would you? Well, I, they'd made an album called um, "Being There," mm-hmm. and uh, it was a really great record. And uh, I, um, I just sort of thought they would be ideal for for you know they played in a lot of different styles, and I thought they would be ideal to to play on this. To so play you, on this you reached out to them? I did. Yeah, I knew Jeff Tweedy from uh, Uncle Tupelo. His band that's that a good band. Huh? Yeah, they were a great band, and yeah. I knew Jeff. And I thought he would get it if I explained it to him properly. He would see the opportunity to collaborate with one of the you know, the greats. I mean, I put I put Woody halfway between Walt Whitman and Bob Dylan. Yeah. I think that's where he fits into the American pantheon. Uh-huh. He's a bit Walt Whitman. Yeah. He's a bit Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. But he's, you know, unlike those, he's not from the from the north. He's yeah. from, you know, he's yeah. from the Dust Bowl. And a, there's something really powerful about that. I don't know what it is. but Kind of defined America. Yeah. In a lot of ways. He's, he's kind of like there with yeah. Lead Belly. Gave it that, a voice. That, Gave it yeah. a voice. He's, he's there in the, he's right on the edge of folk music where it just, just before it disappears into, we don't know who wrote that song. He's yeah. right on the cusp. Right. So how did you get along with Tweedy in the? Good, I got along fine. Yeah. You know, we we we, you know, while we were doing the recording, it worked really well. When he went home, they, they, you know, they wanted to produce the whole record, but that wasn't the agreement we had. And we just kind of ironed that out. Yeah. You know. You oh, you wanted to produce some. They were going to produce some. How no, basically, we just produced the songs we wrote. We yeah. produced. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I don't okay. think he'd ever had. had 
that done like that before, and I certainly hadn't. So obviously it was bound to be a bit of a, you know, a little bit of a, yeah. how are we going to do this? But it worked out fine. And we did the second volume, and they recorded <laughs> another five tracks for the second volume. They, you know, they were totally into it. Yeah. And we just put out a third volume last year, the complete session. So we recorded about 50 tracks. That's great. Amazing. So the new record. Yeah. Now, like one thing I noticed, like I listened to it, is like you know you're uh, you know you're fifty five, mm. yeah, and uh, you've lived a life. I have, and there there seems to be some of that uh, wisdom. I hope so. Coming through, I'd like to think. There's well, no swallow my me. pride. Or like I listen to that, I'm like, yeah, oh, fuck, yeah, yeah. I, I better call her. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, we've all been there. We've all done that. You know, we've all done it. I mean, I've been in a loving relationship with my missus for over 20 years, but there yeah. have been periods where we didn't speak to each other for two weeks. Yeah, that's a long well, time. Like, yeah. That I seems went, uniquely the, British yeah. to me. Yeah, to the, to the <laughs> point where you couldn't remember why we had the argument in the first place. Yeah, you know, it didn't matter because all you're holding yeah. on to is that, like, uh, 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 the reckoning. Yeah. There was a, a tone that I don't know if I've, I've heard you do before. It almost felt like, uh, you know, they had that uh, growl, almost like a Springsteen kind of growl. Well, my, my growl. voice has dropped over the last couple of years. Yeah. Joe Henry, who produced the, the album here in Pasadena, he spotted that and he encouraged me to, to sing down there and to use use that voice. And, and I've been using it live and it's been very effective. That must be uh, interesting to yeah. uh, have a new voice. Yeah. I've, I've been really getting off on it. And uh, it's not something that before, I've, I mean, I'm not the world's most technical song, uh, singer. Yeah. But that's, you know, it's worked really well for me. You know, I've, I've it's sort of allowed me to try new new types of song, you know. Yeah, yeah. Instead of just a sort of punk yelp. Yeah. Uh, it's got me into a bit more, uh, I wrote a song of them, uh, I tried to write a gospel song, yeah. you know, in, in a kind of sort of thing Johnny Cash or Elvis mm-hmm. might sing. Oh, that's I great, like, man. Yeah, I like a bit of that. And uh, so you were, we were talking before, so you got the vinyl coming out? Yeah, well, we've got it on vinyl, yeah, really thick, yeah. 180 grams. Yeah, there you go. And you get a free download with it. And, uh, and I love it. And you were telling me uh, before we came in here that your son, your 19-year-old son, only buys records. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he buys mostly second-hand records, yeah. Isn't it? Wow. Someone's trying to get me. Yeah. Um, is that you or him? I, it might be. It's probably him ringing yeah. up, asking for some more money to buy some more vinyl. <laughs> Bless. But uh, but but isn't that interesting that you have that that resource where when we were kids we bought vinyl. That was all there yeah, was to buy. Yeah, that's what it was to buy. Yeah. But now he's going in junk shops where there's you know loads of seventies and eighties vinyl. He's picking up on all these artists. That yeah. He's, you know, like Neil that Young. You grew up with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's coming and bringing them in to me, and I'm like, yeah, I've, I've got that record. I don't know why you bought that. I've got. <laughs> An original copy. Why don't you send where you keep your records? Well, they're in the li- you know, they're in the library. Yeah. They're not hard to find. They're all there. He just doesn't want to wade through them. Oh my god. Yeah. I'll wade through them. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so you wanna what do you want? Play a couple off the new record? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Right, we'll set it up. Let's do that. Here are the photos that I keep Here's the empty bed where I lay my head to sleep I dream about you, but my dreams will not come true Till I Swallow my pride Get back home to you Tell myself I'm in the right 
That won't keep me warm through another lonely night I can't live without you Even though you make me blue Got to swallow my pride Get back I know your love for me runs deep But I'm the man who makes you cry yourself to sleep Oh, how can a man be strong Can't even lift a telephone and say he's wrong If I want you back again, then I know what I must do Got to swallow my pride and get back Swallow my pride and get back home to you. Nice. That was great. Thank you. You a Keith fan? You are, right? Oh, I am, yeah. Big time. <laughs> big time, yeah. He's the man. Yeah, that's one of the good things about my son. He's, he's a big, big fan of... Uh, Stones? Not just the Stones, but particularly... Those sort of like seventies, you know, late seventies, uh, late sixties, early seventies stones where it keeps really hitting the mark, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tumbling dice and yeah. that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, Have you met him? No, I'm not. No. You're going to be playing with him though, huh? You're going to be playing with them in Glastonbury? Possibly, yeah, yeah. I'm on the same day. I'm not playing on the same stage, but yeah. on the same day, yeah. I wonder if it'd be like to meet him now. <laughs> I think he'd be pretty cool. So this is uh, Handyman Blues? Yeah. I'm never gonna be the handyman around the house my father was. Don't be asking me to hang a curtain rail for you Because that screwdriver business just gets me confused It takes me half an hour to change a fuse And when I flick the switch the light's all blue I'm not your handyman don't be expecting me to put up shelves or build a garden shed But I can write a song that tells the world how much I love you in 
instead I'm not any good at pottery So let's lose a T and just shift back the E And I'll find a way to make my poetry Build a roof over our heads See what I did there? Like I'm just sat here reading the paper But these ideas I'll turn to gold dust later Cause I'm a writer, not a decorator I'm not your handyman, Thank you, Billy Bragg. Pleasure, Mark. That was great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Billy, for playing those songs and for being here. It, it was just uplifting and an education to me, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for that guy. Get all your WTF Pod needs met at WTFPod.com. Buy some merchandise. Leave a comment. Uh, you know, Look into the Lipson deal if you want to get your own podcast going. Do what else? Get some justcoffee.coop. You get the WTF blend. I, you know, I get a little bit on the backside of that. Do what you got to do. Check that episode guide when you tweet at me. Have you had so-and-so on? Probably. Get that app. Upgrade to the premium app. Get them all. Get the DVD of the first 100 episodes. Get my book, Attempting Normal, wherever you get books. And know that I love you, and I appreciate you guys being there. And I think I'm okay with Michael Ian Black. I think I am. And I think I saw Boomer. But I got I'm gonna have to let go of that shit. He's down the street. But he would have come back here. He would have come by here. But now I'm driving around that house down there. How am I gonna explain that to the cops? Yeah, I've, I've been circling the house because I think I think that's my cat. Well, why don't we go have a look? No, that'll ruin it. Don't harsh my hope, Buzz. Boomer lives! Uh-huh.